You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We know the words of Franklin Roosevelt delivered to millions via crackling radio signal. Less known is the rest of the inaugural speech. We are stricken by no plague of locusts. Plenty is at our doorstep, but a generous use of it languishes in the very sight of supply. With a continuing emergency and 20% unemployment, he appointed a man who, among other things, would spend $50,000 a minute. Anyone who thinks that the recent recession of 07 to 10 gives us a good idea of what the Great Depression was like in America probably doesn't know the difference between an earthquake and a little ground tremor. With sympathy for those who have lost jobs in these times, or homes, of course, imagine 10 million former office workers jettisoning their white shirts and ties. Well, they don't wear white shirts alone anymore, pink and blue as well. Jettisoning those and roaming the suburbs aimlessly looking for work. Imagine no severance. No COBRA, no mortgage assistance, no refinancing or modification, no social security for the old. So not only are you taking care of yourself, but also elderly parents. Oh, and by the way, what little money you had made and saved up, you went to the bank, you went to the ATM, and there was nothing there. Perhaps the bank wasn't even in business anymore and no one was backing it up. And it went on and got worse. That's the Great Depression. Stock market crash happened in 29. So by years, let's say that was 2007 right now, and it's 2010. So by years, that's 1932. And so as right now, we sort of feel like we're getting out of the recession. Wham! Bank failures in 1933. Congress unable to get anything done till a new president arrives. When that president arrived, he acted. He called Congress into session, and in a few days, the newly elected New Deal Congress met and passed several bank bills, relief bills, which many members had no time to read, and passed them by acclamation. Nothing like an emergency to bind legislature and executive. Did the people blame the Congress for being so hasty? No, because the lame duck Congress that was in office before got absolutely nothing done. It was an embarrassment to the institution of Congress and the country. Among the bills passed by the new New Deal Congress was one for $500 million federal relief to Americans. Pretty big concept for that time. And Franklin Roosevelt knew just the person to run the department that would dole out that money. Harry Hopkins was originally from Iowa, but had spent his adult years in New York City. He looked Midwestern and acted urbane. He was an odd bird in social work. He was called a wisecracker, 
A man raised in a pool hall. A cynical paper boy delivering newspapers at dawn. He had been in social work for 20 years, though. After college, Hopkins worked at Christodora House on the Lower East Side of New York. As early as 1915, he worked on early social work programs that involved public sector jobs. That involved work programs, jobs programs in the Bronx, using private funds. In the 20s, in the 20s, he worked for the Red Cross in New Orleans. In the beginning of the Depression, he ran a privately funded public work program that was administered through the state government. Funds were raised by donors, and the state government administered the program. It was here that he attracted the attention of the governor of New York, Franklin Roosevelt. His work also gave him a perspective on helping people a respect for those in these work programs, those on relief who wanted to work, but where there was no work for them, a desire to keep them anonymous. Why should they have to fill out a lot of paperwork? Why should they have to beg for relief? He tried to limit paperwork and applications, requirements, income test means, testing, and the like. He was concerned about the morale of the people on the relief. What good was it to employ people They weren't happy. His core philosophy would end up in the many programs that we now consider the New Deal. When he was appointed, Washington responded with a collective who? In a year, he would be one of the most famous people in Washington. Before he took office, Franklin Roosevelt asked to see him and told him he wanted relief to the maximum amount of people as quickly as possible. Hopkins took him at his word. Right after his meeting with the president, He walked over to an office in the Reconstruction Finance Corporation building. This was an agency that was started under the Hoover administration and had a small number of public works projects. He grabbed a desk out of one of the offices there, put it into the hallway, and in two hours had spent $5 million of Congress's dollars. Hopkins was bold in requests for money and wise in spending it. Where he knew he was putting people to work, he was not bashful. When he spoke in front of a group of farmers in Iowa, He explained his program. Shirt sleeves rolled up with a flair for the dramatic, he said, and who's going to pay for it? And then, in response to his own question, Hopkins said to the farmers, you are. This is the greatest country in the world, and we can afford it. Just what any taxpaying audience wants to hear, right? Just what someone could get away with saying these days, right? I can't imagine that line working today, but it only went so far for Hopkins, too. In the mid and later 30s, he had to do a lot more to sell his programs to the public and Congress. But Franklin Roosevelt was sold. He trusted Hopkins. And Hopkins would also head the CWA, the Civilian Works Administration, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and the most well-known of the groups, the WPA, Works Progress Administration. He'd become FDR's envoy to Churchill during the pre-war years and during the war. But despite all that trust that FDR had in Hopkins, he was still one to have a couple of players on the team, and to have a couple of different avenues. One of the other players was Harold Ickes. Ickes was a Chicago Bull Moose Republican, a supporter of Theodore Roosevelt, a veteran of battles with the Chicago political machine and the conservative part of the Republican Party. Franklin Roosevelt did not know Ickes, but when he contacted California Senator, Progressive Senator Hiram Johnson and said he wanted to have a Republican in his cabinet, 
Johnson suggested Ickes, and FDR made him his Secretary of Interior on that endorsement. There, Ickes would take a role in desegregating national parks, protecting the oil reserves, and denying helium to Nazi Germany. But he was best known for his dual role as head of the Public Works Administration, a role that put him in conflict with Harry Hopkins. The two had no love for each other. Ickes thought that Hopkins was wasting money. He's not priming the pump, Ickes said of Hopkins. He's turning on the fire plug. Hopkins had no respect for Ickes as well. Every time he doesn't get his way, Hopkins said, Ickes resigns. The two philosophies of Hopkins and Ickes would define the conflict over stimulus in the 1930s, and their struggle is still evident in stimulus today. The New Deal is a loose term that describes a wide range of programs, but several were involved. To some degree, it reflects the fact that Roosevelt didn't know which program would work, and so he tried several of them, some even contradictory. FERA, the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, was one of the first of the so-called alphabet soup agencies that opponents derided the New Deal for, the CWA, the CCC, the PWA, WPA, TVA, etc., that the government would create in the 1930s. FERA provide relief to states, and then the states would provide relief to people. They were supposed to pay a minimum wage, perhaps $6 a week, but often states split the relief among several people, several families, so that they could help more. $500 million was appropriated, but it went fast. And fairly soon, as the summer of 1933 came around, Roosevelt began to think about what to do with all the young people. The Depression coincided with a time of dust bowls and poor environmental conditions in the middle of America. The CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, was created to take young people and get them to do planting, to plant trees. We didn't use the term green as we do now, environmental as we do now, but my sense is that if we did, we'd call them the Green Corps today. Over three million people were employed by the CCC over the course of time, which went into the early 1940s. The CCC formed in 1,400 camps across the country. They planted three billion trees, rehabilitated 800 parks. Most of the employees of the CCC would work 40 hours a week, and they'd get paid about $30 a month, which is something around $450 a month now by the, if we just compare prices, of course, having money at all in the 1930s puts you above many others. Of that, $22 a month or so, or 360 in the crudest measure of today's money, had to be sent to a family member. Okay, that could be mom or dad, as many CCC members were 18 to 20 years old, or, given that it was during the Depression, a small number of these CCC workers were older people, and so it could be sent to a spouse or other family members. As the camps were located in areas that were settled, they allowed local residents to join. That helped to build public relations for the program. In some communities, the camp was coming in, and these were new people, transients, and they were afraid. So it helped to have a few local folks in the camp as well. So they had no age restrictions for the local members. CC not only built up the environment, but it built relationships between young people. 
There was a military style to a CCC camp. And it instilled discipline in young people. Not surprisingly, the Civilian Conservation Corps did not endure the bad reputation that many other alphabet soup programs did. In a 1937 Gallup poll, 87% of Americans supported the camps. It remained funded, popular with Congress, only when World War II came and young volunteers could no longer be found for the program, did it stop. Many CCC members became Roosevelt supporters for the rest of their lives. So, fairer for the indigent, CCC for the youth. But as we hit 1933's fall, the magic that most people expected from Franklin Roosevelt was fading fast. Labor unions were striking. Large numbers of unemployed were roaming the countryside looking for work where there was none. And within the Roosevelt administration, there was a counter-movement to get people working instead of on relief. The dole is a narcotic, Roosevelt said. More than anything else, the administration feared that hundreds of people would starve to death during the cold winter of 33 and 34. He had taken office from Hoover in March. Good timing. The weather was starting to get warmer, but he would not permit people to starve on his watch. The result was a direct injection of federal money into the new workforce. For the first time ever, it was a workforce that was non-military that would be staffed by American civilians. And it was massive. Four million workers from November 33 to March 34 would be employed by this new agency, the Civilian Works Administration. 12 million feet of sewer pipe were laid. 40,000 schools were built or repaired. 4,000 playgrounds were constructed. The CWA is not as well known as the longer-lasting child of it, the WPA. But it was the largest step for the federal government since World War I. Not surprisingly, Roosevelt tapped Harry Hopkins to be in charge of this program. And over the winter of 34, checks went to Depression families all over the country. The most opposition of the CWA originally came from organized labor. They feared new groups of workers, not under their organization. Roosevelt made certain to steer clear of work that might compete with real industries. CWA workers might rake leaves, work on a park, but they would never build a building up or make anything out of steel. But new dealers in the Roosevelt White House found that no less a labor friend than Samuel Gompers had called for public work spending during a depression, the Depression of 1894. This little bit of history, dug up at the time, helped to convince labor unions that it was not entirely a bad idea for the government to employ workers. It was decided that the CWA workers would be administered by the feds directly, so state authorities could not take the money and split it in order to offer more jobs. It was also decided that the federal government would pay a prevailing wage, say $15 a week. Not terrible money, probably was around 225 a week in today's bucks, but again, that would be a little more in the 30s because if you actually had money on the street when there was none, 
you were something else. It was a relatively high wage, designed so that they would not deflate wages. The CWA seemed to help initially during the winter, but the size and scope of the program shocked Roosevelt. And he was alarmed that a program that was supposed to cost $400 million total ended up costing $200 million a month by February 1993. It reached over a billion dollars. The cautious Franklin came out. This country must be assured that we do not plan a permanent depression, he said. Fiscal conservatives Henry Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary, and Lewis Douglas, the Director of the Budget, had the President's ear at this time. Sound fiscal policy, where the government did not endure, uh, incur large deficits, was overtaking. No one is going to starve in the summer, Roosevelt said. Despite the objection, Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin, Roosevelt demanded that the CWA be shut down as soon as warm weather arrived. Hopkins did as ordered. He started in the South in April, followed the warm weather up the nation, and by May of 34, four million people had been fired. The CWA and the experiment with direct federal government employment of people was dead. Hopkins leaned towards employment rather than relief. He had seen in his years in New York the terrible results of men having to beg for relief or declare themselves a ward of the state. A job gave a man morale. While those who lost their CWA jobs could now apply to Ferrer for relief, there were forms, declarations, before the non-working could get money. And Ferrer payments were low, about $6 a week. This suited Harold Ickes, Hopkins' rival in the cabinet. Ickes didn't agree with the idea of running up government debt to employ people. FDR's interior secretary preferred public works, bridges, electric dams, schools, large projects. The PWA, or Public Works Administration, was put under his control and explored this indirect boost in the economy. But the PWA worked a little different from the CWA experiment. No one was employed directly by the PWA. Rather than make work jobs, this administration would build real things of significance. Private contractors would be hired, paid for with federal funds. $3.3 billion was spent on PWA projects between 33 and 35. The PWA built many of the projects that are often associated with the WPA, who did fold some of the PWA projects into their control. So the Lincoln Tunnel the Triborough Bridge, the Oakland Bay Bridge, the Cooley Dam, the Key West Overseas Highway. 70% of new schools and one-third of hospitals built between 1933 and 1939 were PWA projects. They used one-half of the concrete and a third of the steel in the nation. Because Ickes argued that the money was going to contractors instead of paying for workers directly, they could do much more. If the federal government employs a worker, that's all they do, employ a worker. If the federal government helps to sustain a company, that company might have other projects as well. Studies had estimated that for every dollar the PWA spent, $2 were injected into the private sector economy. For Iggy's, paying people directly was wasted money. Money that could be better used on projects of substance. Yet Hopkins won most of the president's attention. It was just easier to do it the Hopkins way. The relief came quicker. If Roosevelt waited for Ickes' projects to boost the economy, 
someone else would be sitting in his chair. In January 1935, when the economy continued to look sour, when Democrats were rewarded in the 1934 midterms with even more congressional seats than they had started with, and when the presidential election loomed in just a year away, Hopkins was able to convince Roosevelt to be very bold. The Works Progress Administration would last not just for one winter this time, but for the duration of the emergency. It would take people off relief rolls and put them to work, paying $19 all the way up to $94 a week, enough to be more than relief, but not to compete with private sector jobs. At any one time, 3.3 million people were employed by the Works Progress Administration. Not just leave rakers, but also teachers, writers, actors, Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Artists, African Americans were included, as were Native Americans. The WPA essentially took over the PWA and CWA, but there were rules. The WPA would not go into construction. It was only to employ one person per household. Spouse couldn't work for the WPA if the other spouse was already working there. Only 30 hours a week, less than the 40 hours one might work in the private sector, and no training. The WPA was the butt of jokes. We poke along. We piddle away. We're just many of the satirical names for the WPA. It's honored by some, point to bridges and roads, still in existence over our time. The incredible dollars of value from a bridge built in the 30s or a school constructed or repaired significantly expanded in the 1930s still being used today. The dollars and dollars of generational value. For critics, the WPA is seen as an experiment with socialism, thankfully this country forgot. The question of whether it helped or not might be intractable. Given the condition of the country, I believe it's likely that these work programs did. The injection of money into pocketbooks in such a bleak time had to have helped. But did it fix the depression? We might look at this question with two scenarios. Things didn't get to the pre-Depression levels until World War I arrived. At the same time, unemployment was cut in half by the efforts of the New Deal. But unemployment was still high throughout the 30s. It just wasn't as high as the 20% when FDR took office. And that makes it impossible to say if the Depression was cured by the New Deal. There are two telltale signs, though, that seem to indicate that it did some good. Durable goods sales, factory production, things not directly influenced by the WPA. Remember, the WPA did not put out manufactured goods. They were not allowed to do that. They did not have factories. Those went up coinciding with the creation of the CWA and WPA and PWA projects. And when spending was cut in 1937, everything, including private sector economy, went down. Unemployment went up slightly. 
and all of those numbers reversed in 38 and 39 when the spending was restored. There's still a question then, as do we have a question now as to whether this was, quote, sugar money or real economic difference. There also are some upsetting factors as well. One that would lead us to be a little wary of public works projects in the future. Could an administration use the fact that it's employing people in order to secure votes? While it's probably been overstated and probably not done on as large a scale as was criticized at the time or even now, it's clear that some of that activity went on. Harry Hopkins clearly steered WPA projects to places where senators and congressmen had supported his appropriation. In fact, Hopkins himself specifically targeted a Senator uh, Gillette of Iowa who hadn't voted for WPA projects. In Pennsylvania, it was found that the administration had influenced WPA workers, had suggested strongly to WPA workers that they vote for the right people. One of Hopkins' lieutenants was caught telling workers, we need to support our friends. Spending on public works also coincides well with election years versus non-election years. Those kind of factors should have nothing at all to do with anything that's an economic stimulus. But clearly in the 1930s it did. A negative theory, possibility, which has not been fully fleshed out, is that by supplying public sector jobs, the private sector was actually spoiled in a way that actually deepened unemployment. Under this scenario, employers might be willing to hire, but not at the wages where the public sector could pay. So they can't pull people away from the most likely easier jobs, safer jobs. I mean, even the federal government today fires only one-fourth the rate of the private sector. No one knew anyone who got fired from a WPA job. So there is that theory that by creating this entity that was employing people, You were robbing the public sector of good employees and possible economic recovery. Franklin Roosevelt was not immune to the limitations of work projects. Roosevelt, either because of pressure or his own feelings, decided to decline Harry Hopkins' most bold request, one that was supported by Eleanor Roosevelt, that a jobs program be part of Social Security. This would make government works programs permanent. FDR, partially because he thought the bill might not pass, jettisoned that idea. We never had a Bureau of Permanent Employment in the United States, and the WPA was phased out in 1943. So with all that we've discussed, you might ask, why was there no WPA in this crisis? Instead of, or in addition to, bailing out banks, why didn't Congress and the President move immediately to create an agency that would employ the unemployed? It's not like we didn't expend any money. We passed a stimulus bill of $787 billion. And that's sort of a stunning amount. I'll explain the sort of in a second. It has something to do with what happens when you take money through a time machine. Why is there no AmeriWork, no Job Corps? Why did we spend $787 billion and then keep people on unemployment instead of doing what Harry Hopkins did and figure out who we can give jobs to for the money spent, and give them jobs on the U.S. payroll. Republicans critical of the Obama administration ask, where are the jobs? Truth is, the administrators in Congress could have answered that charge 
fairly easily, but not in a way I think they would have liked very much. They would not have even needed to use the whole $787 billion stimulus amount to do it. They could have put people on the payroll, even if only $500 billion was put to this. You could employ about 20 million people or so at the meager but helpful salary of 30 to 40K. Starting in January 2009, they would have had jobs into January 2010. Retailers would be happy. The Bureau of Labor Stats would have looked awfully good. And maybe you would have stopped a few of the foreclosures. And if you only hired, say, 8 to 10 million Americans instead of 20 millions, you could even keep them employed until January 2011. They'd still be on the payroll. Job Corps. One could imagine the approval of the late Hopkins for such an effort. But talk radio in this country would have lit up, calling it socialistic. And in that case, criticizing such a policy, it'd be hard to disagree with. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Employing people directly by the state is fairly socialistic, but... Perhaps you'd stave off some foreclosures where you needed to. So why not? I think there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it may seem like there's a lot of stimulus money, but there's no money. What does that mean? We spend $787 billion. That's a staggering amount in one sense. And in another sense, it's not. We take in almost $3 trillion in revenues as a government. So if I wanted to be cute about it, I could argue that Spending this money was like a guy making $50,000 a year spending, say, $18,000 on a car to stimulate his life. A waste, maybe, but not uber-dumb. The means are there. Now, I won't use that example because one could easily argue with it that it's not just a guy buying one single car. This guy who bought is buying the car already has debts of like five hundred dollars And oh, by the way, he just spent another $18,000 on his roof because experts told him it was going to collapse. And now he's buying the car to stimulate his life. Okay, let's put that aside. It's a lot of money, $787 billion. But if we go back in the time machine, and it's 1932. If we compared prices today using the Consumer Price Index, what $787 billion is comparable to back then? In 1932, $48 billion, a staggering sum. And $48 billion is more than Franklin Roosevelt or the New Dealers spent. So on the surface, it looks like we're spending a pretty meaningful amount of money. 
in 2009, injecting it into the economy. But the money meant more back then than it does now. So if we go back in the time machine, and this time instead of consumer price index, instead of just you know comparing what the money can buy, if we go back and now look at share of GDP, we spent about $2.8 billion in 1932 dollars relative to GDP. That is less than the amount for just one of the programs, PWA between 1933 and 1935, and there were several other programs, WPA, the CCC, the CWA, etc. Looking at what money can buy is good for understanding the situation of the average Joe. Cost of a car, the cost of milk. But for the big amounts, it's better to get an additional perspective. If we brought, let's say, that $48 billion into the economy of 1932, it would be like bringing a Black Hawk helicopter into the Revolutionary War. Might have won a little faster. So the key number to look at is what is $787 billion in our economy compared to what the New Deal spent. And I'll just take, for example, the first projects. Take the Federal Emergency Relief Agency and the PWA, the Public Works Administration, First couple of years, say about $6 billion. $787 billion now is about 5% of the $14 trillion GDP. Whereas $6 billion then is about 17% of the $56 billion GDP in 1932. Real value in terms of money on the street when there wasn't a lot of money on the street. The New Dealers spent much more in stimulative efforts. And that could be part of the problem. There's not enough money to stimulate the private economy of the United States, especially where the rest of the world is also suffering from an economic slowdown. This stimulus bill had so many other functions. 20% of the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act was Medicaid. Aid to states for Medicaid needed. But it's hard to argue that that's stimulus. 5% of the stimulus package is COBRA extension for the unemployed, a program I support. Great program. Helpful, not really stimulative. Then a good deal of that stimulus money is various tax cuts, FICA cuts, business tax credits, other type of corporate tax credits for various industries. Only $150 billion of the stimulus package is for actual public works infrastructure programs. And of that sum, Much was for ready-to-go projects, projects that most likely had been planned already by state and local governments. Repairs of highways badly needed that have been put off for years. The stimulus money is going to private contractors. There's little or no direct federal employment in the stimulus bill. Harold Ickes would approve, and it does appear that Ickes beat Hopkins in the long game. So the amount of money available is one reason that we have no WPA or job program. It seems like a lot of money's been spent, only a small amount spent public works. A second reason is, I believe, the training level of workers today. Most workers currently in the United States are service workers, office workers of one kind or another. There isn't a large government need for that kind of work. Most American workers 
in 2009, 2010 would not have the type of blue-collar skills needed for the infrastructure projects that we wanted to fund. Where that $150 billion is going are heavily unionized fields already occupied by skilled technicians. It's hard to imagine a service or an office worker function needed by the federal government that's not currently being done by government employees. And there's no retail aspect of the federal government. No federalized Starbucks. Not sure we'd want that. Although I wouldn't mind voting out my representative if the coffee was too mild. It's true that if you went back to 1932, the average employee would have had more skills that could be used by the government. They were handier. That's probably true. But they did face some of the same issues in the 1930s that we have now. Hence, the Public Works Administration, PWA, and, and the Civil Works Authority, CWA, the conflict between those two. And the charges of sort of make-work jobs, leaning on a shovel. Then, as is now, you could put a few people to work, in which some non-laborious jobs, perhaps uh, mopping floors, leave-raking, you know, getting people to help with fixing up parks or schools. But then you run into two problems, one from the left and one from the right. First, when this Job Corps program or America Works program folks start getting out there and raking those leaves, they're most likely going to be raking the leaves that should be raked by town, county, state, or federal public works workers. When they fix up schools, they're going to run into competition with the jobs of local or county school employees. You'll certainly see criticism from the unionized employees. Secondly, there would be charges from the right that direct employment of people would be socialism. Again, hard to argue with. Here's a time problem, too. Once you hire, how long are you going to continue to hire for? I said that you can employ millions of people with stimulus, but for how long? Even if you split it in half and hire people for two years, and now you'd have these people employed from, say, January 2009 to January 2011. How do you end it even then? Politicians? Firing voters, that's what would have to happen. Millions of voters would be fired at once in congressional districts all across the country. I would not believe it outside of a Hollywood movie that politicians would be firing their constituents. There would be enormous pressure for programs to continue even as the economy got better. So I think even the more liberal politicians out there are inclined not to start something that they can't turn off. Franklin Roosevelt never faced that question. He was spared the issue because the programs ended after World War II, and World War II brought employment and took a lot of the able men out of the workforce in any case. Another factor why we don't have a WPA today is the presence of private sector severances, fungible 401k plans, as desperate as a measure as that can be when one loses a job, and public employment compensation, which is almost universally granted for those who lose jobs. This allows people a cushion they didn't have in the 1930s, and they can operate, function, and not starve while they find another private sector job. Unemployment paid for individuals to look for a job creates another limiter for a WPA-like program in 2010. If you can get, say, $200 to $500 a week 
while you're looking for another job, not having to report to a desk, not having to report to a park with a rake. It might take a margin of money more, not just a little bit money more, to actually find willing workers who not just receive a payment to be at home or to be looking for a job, but to actually have to go and spend those hours working. How much that is, double, triple, I'm not sure. But it would have to be more than just a little. Especially where many would think that this federal job they were getting was temporary anyway and would still want to look. Would you be robbing workers of time needed to make resumes, to go on interviews and the like? Would you be doing it on such a large scale that you'd actually be hurting the American labor economy? According to some economists, that's exactly what the New Deal did. It prolonged the Depression by putting pressure on labor markets so that private sector employers had to compete with public sector jobs. They had to pay people more to get them to work than they would have otherwise. And because public sector jobs tended to be easier, it was harder for workers to get fired. They felt more secure in the public sector job. It is true today that the federal government fires at about one-fourth the rate of the private sector. Workers would have to be bought off to get private sector jobs. And in the 1930s, there weren't companies with the type of assets to buy off people in competitive jobs, although they might have money to employ a few people at a decent rate. They would argue the same would happen if a WPA-style program were implemented today. I tend to think the argument is dubious in emergency when private sector employers are firing people left and right executing layoffs and giving severance packages, but it gains more credence as you get to that tail end of a recession or depression. And there, you could be having this boost, but the entrepreneurial spirit is dented because they don't want to pull people away from their job at the park raking leaves. The negatives discussed earlier, that of when politicians are not only your representatives, but also your bosses. The temptation to politics is, is there. And I think that's a factor as well. It happened with, with the WPA roles. The Hatch Act, which bans federal office holders from competing in partisan politics, was created to try to keep the politics out. But politicians are nervous drivers. If a Job Corps program existed today, how much of it would come in line for the 2010 midterms would it be expanded suddenly for the 2012 election? To get a job in such a program, a federal government program, who would you see to really get the job? Of course, you could fill out a form and see and hand it off to a commission office. But if you really wanted a job, who did you see? A local political boss? A senator? Stranger things can happen when the government's in control of employment that way. All of these reasons, I believe, are obstacles to a WPA today. One wonders if a small program, perhaps maybe $50 billion of that stimulus, could have been attempted to experiment with a Job Corps-type program, maybe to help the areas most devastated by the mortgage crisis. Maybe you help towns and counties employ more people with a mandate that they cannot lay off anyone they currently have. Perhaps with a small program, $50 billion or so, there's a, some type of work that the government actually needs from office workers. 
entering medical records into an electronic format from paper, searching for tax cheats. Who knows? Well, I think the reason there's no smaller program is that it suffers from its own middling position. I think this is a program you either have to do it all the way and create a WPA-type system or not do it at all. A smaller program is too small to damage, perhaps, too small to get as much criticism as the larger, larger program would, but it's also too small to affect anything. And then with the additional problem of if you're only doing a small amount of jobs and many of the unemployed will not get those federal jobs, who gets them and who doesn't, how do you decide? For these many reasons, I think there was no rush to the public work job idea in the stimulus bill during this past recession. We cannot, it seems, lean on shovels or keyboards. I want to thank you for listening. The website's myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and a reminder about the Facebook site. And as always, if you like the show, spread the word. I want to thank you for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.